congregation and the church said again amen awesome it's so great to see you guys here this morning i want to welcome all our visitors again and tell you this we have uh kids classes going on right now children's worship so if you're a visitor here and you have a kid under the age of four you may send them across the courtyard with miss dorothy and uh, there they will have kind of a children's uh, training course I invite you guys to turn uh, to Philippians chapter 3. That's where we're going to camp out for the most of the time this morning. As I've been reflecting about over the past six to eight months on all that the Lord has been teaching me, and it's been a lot. He's taught me a little bit about faith. He's taught me a little more about trust. He's taught me a lot of things, but as I've been reflecting on all the Lord has been teaching me. He's been telling me this. I don't want to waste my life. When I think about all of my wonderful friends and family back home in Alabama, I, I, I want my life to count for them. When I think about you guys in this church, and man, has he just given me a heart for you people. I want my life to count for you. When I think about the just over 2 billion people right now on this planet that have not even heard the name of Jesus Christ, I want my life to count for them. When I think about this story that I heard the, the other day of this family finally deciding, I, I, they said, we want to adopt we're going to go to Kazakhstan and we're going to pick up this little boy. As they were living, they received a parting gift to go along with the child they adopted. And it was a tiny hat that they said was customary for little Muslim boys to wear to the mosque. I want my life to count for that city. And the thousands of other cities like it. I want my life to count. I don't want to waste the life that God has entrusted to me. And as we dive into this text of Philippians chapter 3, this central truth is going to penetrate us to the core over the next two weeks. God wants to raise up men and women in His church whose lives count for His glory on the landscape of human history. And in this text, that word count is about to be mentioned three different times. And this is Paul taking a step back, just like a lot of us go on vacation and we're finally free from the troubles of the world, free from the busyness of the world, and we have time to finally reflect. This is Paul taking a step back and reflecting on what it means to be a Christ follower. And I'm convinced that the truths that are revealed in this text will penetrate us to our core. They will rock our world. So let's dive into this text together. Philippians chapter 3, we'll begin in verse uh, 1. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And I love this. This is just like a, just like a preacher, isn't it? He says, finally, and he's still got half the book left to write. Ed, I don't know where you are, but you've never done that before, have you? Hour later, we're at a service. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as for legalistic righteousness, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here's his reevaluation. Here's him stepping back. And over the course of the next two weeks, we're going to see some very, very profound truths that are contained. This text is so rich, but this first characteristic that we're going to look at together, people like this treasure Christ above everything this world has to offer. And from the very beginning, Paul is addressing a problem in the church caused by a group of Judaizers. We see this in verse 2. And these guys were Jewish Christians whose practice was to go into situations where uh, Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. The good work that Paul and Barnabas and those guys were doing. These guys would come into those situations and pull out their list, their long list of things these guys had to do to come into faith in Christ and to come into fellowship with God's church. And as a result, they were hindering the advancement of the gospel through the entire Gentile world because they were putting out these rules and regulations that were masking the true message of the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith alone. So Paul uses some pretty fierce terms to describe them. He, he says, watch out for those dogs those mutilators of the flesh. These aren't kind terms that Paul is using here. He's pretty fired up about this. He hates what's going on here. And then we come to verse 4, and I love this. He says, If anyone thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And we don't pick up on this as much in our language. But back in the day uh, of their language, this was similar to what we think of as little Greek trash talk. Paul's talking a little trash here. He puts a major emphasis on anyone else. If any other man thinks that he has more than me when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to living the right kind of life, he's challenging them. He's setting them up. And then he lists seven different things that could be split up into two main categories in the following verses. And one are things that he had received things that he had gotten from birth. The second are things he had achieved, things he had worked for, and things that he had earned. So look at this list with me. Uh, I want to think about them in five different groups, starting in verse 5. He says, First, 
circumcised on the eighth day. Second, of the people of Israel. Third, of the tribe of Benjamin. Fourth, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Fifth, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Sixth, as for zeal persecuting the church. Seven, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So he gives the list. Then after he gives the list, he comes to verse 7 and says, Whatever is to my prophet, referencing back to all the things he's just named, I consider them lost for the sake of Christ. So he gives a list of all of these things and he says, they come to one big loss, one big zero. They don't mean a thing. And what I want you to see in verses 4 and 5 is a list that Scripture gives us of treasures of the wasted life. Wasted life because Paul comes to the end, he reflects and he says, and the Bible tells us they're all lost, they're all wasted. So let's look at this together. Treasures of the wasted life. First, family heritage. Family heritage. He talks about his family. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And this is, the, some, this is something that happened only if you grew up with a thick Jewish heritage and a very strong, predominant Jewish family. So he was thick in Jewish heritage. And then he says, of the people of Israel. And then he gets more specific. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. And this, what I want you to see, is a very significant tribe. Because if you remember the tribe of Benjamin, when everyone else, when all the other tribes were abandoning, abandoning the Davidic throne, it was the tribe of Benjamin who remained loyal to King David. Did you know also that it was the tribe of Benjamin who gave Israel their first king, King Saul? Do you realize that this man was formerly Saul? It's very possible that this man could have been named after the first king of Israel. So he had this kind of thick, strong Jewish heritage. He had the family heritage, the social status. Think about it. Uh, it goes back to the tribe of Benjamin stuff. They were an upper echelon tribe, the who's who of society, the ones who people knew the people, the ones who uh, people knew their names. They were, they were up there. Biblical knowledge, he says, in regard to the law of Pharisee. Now, Pharisees get a bad rap in the New Testament, don't they? And they very well should. Jesus had to take some of the dumb things they were doing and put them in their place. And I love to see that happen because it was needed. But one other thing about Pharisees is they knew Scripture like the back of their hand. They meditated day and night just like the Bible told them to. They knew it within their hearts. They knew the Word. They loved the Word. Paul was one of those guys. He knew the Word. He loved the Word. Religious activity. As for zeal, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. And not only was he a nominal part of the Jewish faith, he was a zealous member of Judaism. He was passionate about what he believed in. And on top of that, he says, a moral, uh, the moral lifestyle. He says, legalistic righteousness, as far as that goes, I am blameless. And it's almost as if he's challenging them to point out anything in his life that isn't right. Anywhere he hasn't followed the rules when he was supposed to follow them, he's challenging them, point it out to me, because I know better. He's living that moral lifestyle. So there's the list, and I want you to look at that list with me. I want you to look at this list with me, and I want you to ask yourself, 
What do all five of these things have in common? If you'll notice, every single one of those things are good things. You see that? Family heritage. Is it a bad thing to have pride in your family, to have love for your family? Of course not. Social status obviously could be corrupted, but in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. To be known by society, to be well-known in your culture. Biblical knowledge, you're saying it's a bad thing to have biblical knowledge? Of course not. Obviously, it's a great thing to have biblical knowledge. Religious activity, zeal, having passion for what you believe in. A great thing. A moral lifestyle, of course. All of those things ladies and gentlemen, are good things. And that's what we need to understand and realize. It was not bad things that were keeping Paul from Jesus. It was good things that were keeping Paul from Jesus. This is huge. Do you catch the gravity of what Paul is saying here? He's telling us that it is possible to love your family, to take your family to church, to take your kids to church just like your family did for you and have a good reputation in your culture, in your society, in the community where you live and to have deep biblical knowledge to know the Word, to love the Word, even to teach the Word and to preach the Word. And on top of that, not only to be in church, but to be active in church, a zealous member of your church, and to be a very decent moral person. It is possible to have all of those things come to the end of your life and it be written across the top of it, wasted. That's what he's saying here. All of those things are treasures of the wasted life. Now some of you are thinking, now if those are treasures of the wasted life, what in life counts? I'm glad you asked. Paul comes to the end of this list. He groups them all together and says they're one big loss, one big zero compared to one thing. And the one thing is the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We have all of the treasures of the wasted life in one column. And the only treasure that counts in this life is Christ. He repeats this over and over and over again, all the way through verse 11. and verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and the participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. He repeats this over and over and over again and why. He says that you can have all of these things, but Christ is far greater than all of the things in this world piled together into one. So at this point, we need to take a step back and realize what Paul is telling us about being a Christ follower. Being a Christ follower, according to Philippians chapter 3, means that we discover that Jesus Christ is a treasure chest of holy joy. And we take everything and everyone else in our lives and ride over the cross of it loss without Him. Everything, everyone, the most cherished family relationship, our reputation, even the good things that religion says we need to do, our morality, all of it. We write one big word across of it, capital letters, loss, without Him. 
he even says it's rubbish. And this is, this is hilarious to me. It, it was an embarrassing word, this word for rubbish, in the original language. And even the early translators were hesitant to include it. It's a word that he basically says he considers all of these things as dung. It's literally what the word rubbish means. All of this. Rubbish. Don't miss the gravity of this statement because this is radically different than the kind of Christianity that is being celebrated across our country today. It's radically different than the Christianity that is being practiced in lives all across our country this week and sung about today. And you say, Taylor, what, what in the world do you even mean? There are thousands upon thousands of people who today have gone to church with their families thinking that their life is going to count because they have brought their kids to church just like their parents did for them. There are multitudes of people who are sitting in seats or pews across our country this morning with nice clothes on their backs and nice cars in the parking lots and nice homes waiting for them when they get back who cannot fathom the fact that it all doesn't matter a bit. It's wasted. Nice jobs, nice businesses. There are countless people who are going to Bible study today who are listening to the Word of God being taught and preached, and it's all wasted. I'm convinced that there are countless people preaching the Word and teaching the Word today who think that that counts for something, and it's a loss. It's wasted. Scores of people who are living high moral lives, who are the most decent of people, and it's all wasted. I'm convinced, based on the Word of God, that there are people in this room right now who will be surprised and shocked to stand before the Lord one day to give an account of their lives and will say the words just like Jesus said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name perform many miracles? Did we not drive out demons? Lord, did we not go to church? Did we not serve in church? Did we not participate in church? Did we not take our family to church? Did we not live and lead good lives as a mom and dad? Did we not have a good reputation in our community, even knowing the Bible, reading it and studying it? Did we not do these things? Do we not live up to the highest standards set by the culture around us and it will be written across that life, wasted. It doesn't matter. Those are the many treasures of the wasted life. God help us to get a hold of this. These treasures are subtly deceptive because they mask our true spiritual condition. I want to ask everyone in here this morning a question regardless of your age, regardless of whether you have been a lifetime member here, whether you are a guest, whether you are a minister on the staff, whether you work here, whether you're an elder here. Get through all the rubbish. Get through all the things that don't matter. The question is, do you know Christ? Don't let all the other thoughts come in. Well, I've got this, 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 and this, and this. I've prayed a prayer. I've been baptized. I've been living a good life. That's not the question Scripture gives us. The question is, do you know Christ? Do you know Him? And is He the treasure chest of holy joy around which everything in your life revolves? So that everything else in this life pales in comparison to who He is.
That's biblical Christianity. That's the heart of a Christ follower. Do you know Christ? See, somewhere along the way, I, I believe we have forgotten, and it's the power of the adversary. He numbs us. He lulls us to sleep with all of these things in our lives. And we have forgotten this, ladies and gentlemen, that in Christ we have found something worth losing everything for. Now, it's just, just Paul talking here. No, it's Jesus saying, if you are going to follow me, you must lose everything. Father, mother, brother, sister, take up your cross and follow me. What a radical statement by Jesus himself. So at this point, I want us to look at a couple of pictures of this. We have found something worth losing everything for. Matthew chapter 13. There are a couple of short parables here. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. We'll read that one more time. The kingdom of heaven, the life of a Christ follower, is like treasure hid in, in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. He didn't begrudgingly go and say, I guess I'm going to give all this away. No, in his joy, he said, I'm willing to give up everything to go back and buy this field where this treasure is hidden. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is a core truth of what it means to be a Christ follower. To find something so infinitely great. Paul says surpassing greatness. I want you to realize this. This is redundant language. He's trying to make a point. And isn't this the cry of men and women throughout Scripture, throughout church history? I've been reading a lot in Job and in Exodus lately, and I think about Job all of the things he lost, he really did lose everything, didn't he? Lost his, all of his children just at the drop of a hat. I can't even imagine. All that he's left with is a nagging wife. <laughs> poor, poor man. I mean, he doesn't even have his health anymore. He has boils all over his skin. He's down in the pit. And we come to a point in Job chapter 19 where he says... I have my Redeemer and He will stand for me. I might have lost everything else, but I still have my Redeemer. Think about Moses, and this is interesting. In Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, it actually says that for the sake of Christ, Moses gave up, he forfeited all of the pleasures, all of the joys and riches of Egypt 
for the sake of Christ. And that's interesting language because Christ wasn't even around back then. But Moses knew what he had in following his Lord. And he knew that eventually one day God would save his people through Christ. He had that. And he was willing to lose every single thing that was promised to him on this earth for the sake of that. And what I want you to see here, some of you might be thinking, well, Taylor, Job, Moses, those are pretty sharp people. People of extraordinary faith. I want to show you kind of a no-name in Scripture. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, the passage right before uh, the passage we've been reading in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 25. A little bit of a background here. Remember that Paul is writing uh, this from prison. And oftentimes when people of the Lord were in prison, guess what? The churches came through. They sent people to their aid. And in this case, we meet a man that was sent to Paul's aid. Philippians 2, starting in verse 25. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. Underline this in your Bible, the word risked. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Now here's a little snippet of a story in Scripture, barely even mentioned. This man named Epaphroditus. We know that the Bible tells us that he was ill. We don't know what he was ill from, but we see the word that I told you to underline, that he risked his life. He risked it all for the sake of Christ. The word there means this, to wager, almost as if in a game of chance, to gamble. This was a term, are you hearing me, that was used in that day and time to describe gambling. To risk, to wager something. What did he risk? He risked his life. He risked everything to go and support and help Paul in his work, the ministry that God had given him. So why would Epaphroditus risk it all? He knew the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ and realized this wasn't even really a gamble at all. Compared to his, his greatness, anything is worth losing, even my life. Does that sound a little familiar to you? Philippians 1.21, to live is for Christ and to die is gain. A few centuries after this, there's a group of people in Carthage, North Africa, who under the same name as Epaphroditus called themselves the Riskers, the Gamblers. So here you have a, a group of God's gamblers in the best of ways. There was an outbreak of the plague in Carthage, North Africa, and in those days. And it got so bad that even the family members of the children and women and men who were dying 
wouldn't even be around them if they had it. If they died, they wouldn't even bother to go bury them. They just left them there. Huge outbreak. But it was this group of gamblers, the riskers, who when no one else would care for these people, they went into Carthage, North Africa, and they took care of these people, risking their lives. Risking their lives for the human souls that Christ had given them to to take care of. At this point, do you see the picture here of New Testament biblical Christianity? This kind of Christianity holds on to no one in this world, holds on to nothing in this world, that whenever it comes to choosing something or Christ, we always choose Christ. Someone in Christ, we always choose Christ. And when the good people, the good things in this world are taken away, we never lose our joy. We never lose our lives. Why? Because Christ is our life. He is our treasure. Does that mean that there's no pain when you lose? Absolutely not. There's deep pain. We see that kind of pain from Jesus himself in the garden. That was real pain. But it's a pain that says, Christ is still my treasure. I've got Everything I need. Is that the kind of lives we're living in this room? Is that the kind of perspective we have? Or are we hiding behind the many treasures of the wasted life, living a life that says, I'm going to have Christ and all of these things, and all of these treasures? That's what the Judaizers were doing. We'll follow Jesus, but we'll also do this, 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 and this. And Paul says, it's all rubbish. I've got Christ, and that's all that matters. You can take away everything from me. Imagine how frustrating it was for the people who were tending to Paul in his jail cell. The prison guards would threaten him. We're going to kill you. But Paul would say, okay, if you kill me, that's actually better for me. But if you let me live... That's okay too. I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. Imagine how frustrating that was. God, help us to risk it all. God, help us to stop playing games with the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ. God, help us to sacrifice every treasure of the wasted life. Ladies and gentlemen, how are we ever going to impact this city? Orange County. California, in this world, if we're holding on to everything else but Christ, we won't do it. We won't do it. How are we ever going to accomplish the Great Commission if the least reached places in the world today are the most dangerous places in the world today? And the reaction to this point has been... If they're the most dangerous places, then we need not go there. We need to stay away from there. And the kind of Christianity we are seeing in Philippians chapter 3 is radically different. It says we are going to the most dangerous places, and we are risking our lives, and we are risking our families, and we are risking our jobs, we're risking our finances, we're risking it all so that Christ will be exalted in us. We want to gain Christ, we want to know Christ completely, and we want to rest the rest of the world to see that he is a treasure of lasting value. You take anything away from us and we will still be pleased with our Savior. That's much bigger than a Sunday morning routine. That's much bigger than going through the motions week after week after week and calling it Christianity. I want to tell you about this man, one of my favorite 
missionaries that I've enjoyed the privilege of reading about. Went by the name of C.T. Studd. Love that name. Absolutely wish I was named C.T. Studd. (laughs) But he's most famous for this quote. Listen to this. He says, Some wish to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He was a wealthy English athlete. He had inherited lots and lots of money from his family, but he had accumulated a lot through uh, the sports that he played. And he came to faith in Christ, and guess what he did? He sold everything. Not some things, he sold everything. And almost like being tested by the adversary, his dad gave him a great inheritance, and guess what he did? He gave it all away. No money to his name. Then he went off to China and penetrated unreached people groups with the gospel. And then he went to India and other places. But what I want you to get is this. He came back to England when he was older, and he didn't store up treasures in this world for retirement. He didn't count up his 401k. He didn't dream about life on a beach somewhere. Instead, he went to Africa. And during the last 13 years of his life, he saw his wife for one night during those 13 years. And to see the letters that, little snippets of the letters that they wrote back and forth during those 13 years as they partnered together in the gospel, her gathering funds, gathering people, gathering resources, and sending it to him in Africa. Just, I'm not in any way advocating this, but it's just incredible. And in these days, in these 13 years, he faced opposition from the church. They, they thought he had kind of lost it. When he first went to China, they are like, no, don't go to China, you'll die. When he went to India, they, they basically said the same thing. But when he said, I want to go to Africa, most of them were like, what in the world are you going to do at age late 70-something in Africa? What in the world are you going to do there? And when he gets there, because no one else would join him and they were still questioning him, he wrote this. It was kind of his final rallying cry. He said, from God's insignificance and nobodies. Too long have we been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting is past. The hour of God has struck. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. The God of heaven, he will fight for us as we for him. We will not build on the sand, but on the bedrock of the sayings of Christ. And the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should such men as we fear before the whole world, I, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faultless, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, he said namby-pamby, we will dare to trust in our God. We will venture our all for Him. We will live and we will die for Him. And we will do it with His joy unspeakable, singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than live trusting in man. And when... We come to this position, the battle is already won, and the end of the glorious campaign in sight, we will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and pretty thoughts. 
we will have a masculine holiness, one of daring faith and works for Jesus Christ. I don't want to come to the end of my life, and it's possible for me to come to the end of my life, ministering, discipling, preaching, teaching, going to other countries, raising a great family, living a good life, and in the middle of it all, have it wasted because I missed the whole point. I don't want to come to the end of my life and have wasted written across the top. I want to come to the end of my life and find that all things have been counted lost, and Christ is my treasure I don't want to be a church, and we could be a church that goes throughout the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years running great programs, doing great ministries, doing amazing things, and however over the top have it written wasted. I want our lives to count for His glory on the landscape of human history, such that we say we consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And get this. Now that seems like too great a risk. It seems like too great a gamble. But here's the beauty of it. When we consider everything else a loss, and we treasure Christ, it is then and only then that we learn to honor these things best. And to use these things best. And all of these good things now become avenues through which we treasure Christ more. What a radically different way to look at life. God, help us to risk it all. Help us to realize that Christianity, which costs nothing, produces the same. God, help us to realize it is better to lose our lives than to waste them. God, we come to you today offering all of the good things in our lives, all of the great things in our lives, even dearest friends and family, even sports, even great possessions, God, even our jobs, even our businesses, we come offering them to you today, laying them at your feet and saying, God, we just want Christ. God, may we as a people, may we as a congregation here at the Church of Christ at Mission Viejo risk everything for you. And God, may all of Orange County feel the effects of that. May Satan be trembling right now because he knows that something's coming. And God, it's us. God, I pray that we would lay everything at your feet and that we would proudly proclaim we are following Jesus, not going back, not looking back, holding nothing back. Lord Jesus, we honor and we serve you. We proudly proclaim your name here today. Father, bless this church. Bless these people. We love you. We give you everything. In Jesus' name, amen.